audio conversation with Peter Robbins, recorded Thursday, December 3rd, 2011. The reason I wanted to talk to Peter is because uh, Peter worked with Bud Hopkins as his assistant for over 30 years, and, and it was in late August of this year, 2011, when Bud died. Um, he had been ill for a number of years, and he died at the age of 80 um, in New York with his family by his side. I don't really feel like um, Bud needs an introduction. Anyone who has made it to my website, uh, I am assuming, knows quite well who Bud Hopkins is. Uh, Peter may need an introduction, even though he's quite a a well-known researcher in his own right. Uh, He is the author, along with Larry Warren, of probably the single best book on the Rendlesham case, titled Left at Eastgate. And and, uh, I'll add that uh, Peter has a very deeply personal reason for being interested in the UFO subject. He and his sister, his sister is named Helen, had a uh, very vivid sighting while uh, at their home while they were both young, and this took place in the late 60s on Long Island. Uh, His sister had... Uh, what by all accounts is a history of UFO abduction, and that is the reason she originally sought out Bud Hopkins. Peter uh, was right there on one occasion, and the uh, the way the story has emerged um, is that uh, she was in fact abducted while he remained there, as far as I can tell, uh, simply frozen in the front lawn. Uh, we talk about that experience uh, during during this uh, conversation. And it was this event that brought him to Bud initially. Both him and his sister uh, worked with Bud. Now, um, I met Peter in person, and it would have been the fall of 2007. Uh, I was in New York City, as was Peter. Peter wasn't living in the city at that time. Peter was living upstate. Uh, I was staying at a friend's house in Brooklyn, and all I had was Peter's cell phone number. Uh, We had emailed a little bit, and we had spoken briefly on the phone, and I said I was going to be in New York City, and I would very much appreciate the chance to meet him. Uh, I was planning to work with Bud Hopkins at that point, uh, trying to make sense of some of my own memories. Uh, So I dialed him up. He answered the phone. I knew he was staying at a friend's house, and I was also staying at a, at, a, at my own friend's house. And um, I said, uh, hey, we should meet up. And he said, yeah, let's meet up. And I said, hey, I know New York City. I've lived here for 10 years. I'm, I'm, I can meet you anywhere. And he said, yeah, I know New York City really well. I can meet you anywhere, too. And I said, where are you staying? And he said, oh, I'm in Brooklyn. I said, oh, I'm in Brooklyn. And then I said, oh, I'm in the corner of Baltic and Court. And to which he replied, oh, I'm on the corner of Baltic and Court. Uh, it would have been perfect If we could have looked out the window and seen each other, uh, we couldn't. He was slightly around the corner, but we sure did try. Uh, We were were on our cell phones uh, trying to see if we could see the other person, but uh, it didn't happen. This is a long conversation. It's over two hours. Uh, It goes all over the map. Uh, We talk about Bud, we talk about personal stuff, and we talk about the UFO research community and how problematic it can be. Uh, I like Peter a lot. He is a delight to talk with. And um, we ain't shy about digging deep into some, some, some questions. 
Uh, I also will add that I, I did very little editing on this, so you get to hear my more mumbly voice. Sometimes I clean that up a little bit. And, and I left a little bit of our, our chatter, just to, like before we actually started the interview. I, I included a tiny bit of that uh, before the interview proper begins. You'll hear me uh, sort of introduce him, but uh, I thought some of the little, little uh, back and forth we had was nice, so I made sure to include that here. I don't know if this is necessarily a tribute to Bud. Uh, we, we certainly talk about Bud and share some very, very fond memories of Bud. Uh, there may be a day when I just sit down uh, here and record some of my memories of, of, of the time I spent with Bud, which, which were very rewarding, uh, mostly just because he was such a kind-hearted guy. And that, that's a, a lot of what we talk about, and, and the importance of that is what we talk about um, in this conversation. I had a perfectly delightful time uh, in these hours with Peter, I, um, and I really hope you get something out of it. Please enjoy. <laughs> so how have you been? Um, all things being equal, um, good. I've been putting a lot of attention and uh, labor into uh, trying to get myself as many speaking jobs as possible for next year and uh, the big one I'm very pleased to report is that I will be speaking at the UFO Congress in February. And that was something that I was very happy to hear about. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to decide whether I'm going to go. Uh, you know, it's a few months out yet and, um, uh, you know, that that was one of the things that kind of pushed me towards going. And one of the other things is that uh, both Stephen Greer and Whitley Strieber are scheduled oh God, to I speak, know. which, which but, will add to the sort of sociological... Holy shit. I, I couldn't agree with you. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like a wild lineup. Um, and I'm just really glad that I'm going to be included in it. And uh, also very glad that of the list of topics that I submitted, uh, they chose the one that I, I felt was most appropriate to the moment, which is personal reminiscences uh, about Bud and, um, you know, looking at him as objectively as possible in terms of his contributions as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I, I uh, oh God, the Stephen Gurr thing. Um, to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, there you go. Yeah. Good. Good. Hey. Um. Okay. So enough about. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. So anyway, I'm happy to know that you're going to the. Uh, yeah. With. Um, with uh, and I should be in early, and and um, I, I should be in Phoenix um, sometime before that, and remain there uh, for some days after that. I'm hoping anyway. That's what I'm looking at right now. Oh, that's excellent. Oh, okay. Good. Because because that's actually one of the things I have some friends in Flagstaff, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to align it. And I'm, my finances are as lousy as they've been in decades. So. Um, uh, just the the illustration work is you know vanished mm, given the yeah, events of two thousand and eight. Um, oh, but anyway, so yeah, so I so I, I feel strongly that I'll that I'll be there. I haven't actually made the you know purchase the tickets yet. So um, good. So let's uh, go ahead and start the interview. Yeah. And just so you know, I do edit these. Take so it wherever sneeze. you want. And um, again, nothing is sacred. Um, no holds barred. Uh, even though we are friends and you know mutually supportive. I invite you to hit me um, with absolutely any question whatsoever, bud-related or otherwise. Great. So, um, and I edit these uh, interviews. So, if you have to sneeze or if you say something and you want to take it back, just say so, and I can edit it out of the audio. And okay. um, uh, and I, it's the strangest thing that I am in fact doing a audio program because I do kind of mumble and stammer, and uh, <laughs> um, so that's one of the, for my own for my it's own part uh, of your charm. 
Yeah, well, for my own ego, I do go in there and snip out. Uh, I I know exactly what the sound uh, uh, sounds looks like on the little uh, video, or excuse me, the little um, audio uh, soundtrack. Do you know what I mean? It has a little, yeah. so I can just go in and there's with uh, the advent of the modern computer, I can snip that out. My sound is <laughs> so much smarter. Um, good. So that's I'll go great. ahead and start this just the way I always. Start. Yeah, that's great. So, um, hey, Pete, this is the way I started. So I'll count down: three, two, one. Hey, Peter, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Well, I'm delighted to um, to be back with you, Mike, and um, I'm just sorry we can't do it in person. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, the, I, uh, if we, the, 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 what I was hoping to talk about here was um, Bud, and yeah. um, I had a relationship with Bud. It was it was brief, but I did spend a, a number of hours with him at the time. Sure I, was, I was at the time I was working on a documentary, and um, so you know, oh. s- spoke on the phone a bunch. I have a probably about, I'm going to guess about five or six hours of of video footage that we've yeah. never done anything with. The audio, the uh, documentary has has um, uh, you know stalled out you know everyone involved in the documentary feels that there'll be a a day maybe when we resurrect it but at present it's just stalled out so the and i've recently watched some of the footage though not all of it and it's Mm. it's pretty good and one of the things that has happened in this is now four years ago almost um i have changed so i look at the person i was then (laughs) as i was looking into these experiences and i definitely see myself uh different now than than i was in that footage there but anyway here so um uh yeah so we both came to bud in a in a sort of similar way like i went there with uh wanting answers to what would be my own personal set of experiences i don't know if i got the answers i wanted um, and then, and then you also share that where you went to Bud initially, if I remember the story correctly, to um, you know to to better make sense of your own set of experiences. Yes, I guess that's fair characterization. Um, I was really only about a year into <clears throat> my studies, my obsession with the subject, which was triggered by this memory um, from childhood of this phenomenal sighting that my sister Helen and I had together growing up on Long Island, New York. And it led to her just talking with me for the very first time about something that uh, I, I, I was just completely blown away by at the time. And this goes back quite a few years. We're talking about the mid-70s here. Uh, Helen had had uh, an abduction-related experience that same day, an abduction experience, and this was very new to me now. I mean, her description sounds very routine on a certain level. Ooh, just let me interrupt. How old were both you? And, and Helen is just a few years older than you? Uh, she was um, a little less than three years younger than me. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, we were respectively, um, uh, I was 14 and she was just um, 12 years old. And um my, I mean, it sounds like a figure of speech, but m- my life didn't change overnight. It changed in the course of 20 minutes, and I never got my old life back. Um, my career uh, jumped the, tro- the, the trolley tracks, so to say, and I was off in a new direction, and here we are all these years later um, with me maybe not having made the swiftest career decision of my life, practically speaking, but at the same time, I'm I'm proud of the contributions I've made to the field and 
my sister's memory inspires me to continue on in this work because it's very important stuff. Yeah, very much so. In the um, the story of yours and Helen's, it, you've told it on other podcasts, but if could you just um, retell it now? Because that just gives me some perspective of who you yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad to. Um, I, I should um, first say that um, I had what I can only characterize as um, a happy childhood, um, normal trauma. My grandpa died. My dog died. Uh, I had all the usual longings and anxieties of any kid. But wonderful parents, two wonderful sisters, uh, rather idyllic childhood from the time we moved out to uh, Long Island from Queens, New York, and uh, grew up kind of like Leave it to Beaver on a certain level. I mean, I was very uh, naive, and uh, I was in the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts, and I collected rocks and bugs, and I liked to cook and paint and draw and didn't like sports and was short and wore glasses. And, you know, um, and then one afternoon, um, well, late morning, we were playing out on our front lawn, and I visited that front lawn for the first time in many, many years, um, only about a week and a half ago. Oh, my word. Uh, yeah, with um, an old friend from high school who I hadn't seen in more than 20 years, and we basically went time-tripping back into our little village that we grew up in, and it was it was a spectacular day, frankly. I love the guy. Um, um, he lives out in California now, and uh, it, we had only seen each other once in all the years since we graduated from high school. And um, anyway, um, we were goofing around, and I caught something out of my peripheral vision. I looked up in time to see five silvery-white um, disc-shaped objects. Uh, um, I would say they were metallic, but not like shiny, more like brushed aluminum kind of metallic. And um, they were coming in at a, a lively clip, and they stopped in a very precise V formation like you'd see you know fighter jets traveling and they stopped over the house across the street you know i don't know how high up um it depends how big they were but they were not only clear we could make out regular detail around the edge of each that was like yellowish they were that close and they looked like windows you know on an airliner except that they were round you know they were like tipped ellipses they were oblong um but you know if you straightened them out it would be like holding a dinner plate slightly askew and hey, we look question um have you ever drawn them like done a... oh I, I i was obsessed with drawing them repeatedly after um, the event happened and um it made me lose um, uh, the art dealer that i had hoped to get because um and she became one of the most successful in in modern history uh, she had visited my studio some months before and liked my work and wanted to come back in six months and this thing happened in between, and when she came back, I was just like um, a little different than I had been, and I had this whole new portfolio of discs and ellipses and flying saucers, and it made her rather uncomfortable. I can understand why, and I just couldn't go into the specifics of where I had taken off on this direction. It just would make me sound insane as far as I was concerned. Uh, I continued to be a painter and teach painting um, for a number of years more, but, you know, Mike, the, um, a lot of the heart had gone out of it. Uh, I was in New York. I was, you know, um, aspiring to be a, a painter. It's all I wanted to do and to be a successful one as well. 
And there was something lurking in the background now that was more compelling and more important, and I resented the hell out of it. And ultimately, um, my uh, painting and drawing and sculptures sort of mutated into writing, and I went into uh, work in the New York theater. Um, I, I love the camaraderie and the uh, teamwork of working with other artists and, and just had a wonderful time. Never worked harder, made lo less money, or had more fun in my life. Um, and then became uh, literally, um, while that was happening, uh, became an investigative writer, which is uh, the way I fill out my taxes for years now. Yeah, this is so. So I have sort of a similar story where, like, once I started looking into these, my set of experiences, um, you know, uh, you know, the trolley jumped the tracks, and I was on some <laughs> completely different life track. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, you know, I to... remember, um, and I, I should say it here, I remember. When we met, when you had first visited Bud in New York City, and we hit it off immediately and became friends and, of course, stayed in touch after that. And I remember, you know, us kind of just getting to know each other a bit and relating these accounts. And this is so common. It's so common. Um, at this point in my life, having interviewed hundreds of people um, and through Bud, having met and worked with and spent time with hundreds of people who... I am as convinced as I can be, went authentically to the types of experiences that you and my sister shared. Um, it, you know, it's um, it's just the way it is. Uh, but it's it's another reason I'm I'm really glad to be on the show because I know the result of it will be like the two of us sitting in one of our living rooms just talking about this stuff and having a bunch of friends, some of whom we know and don't know, in the radio audience listening. Yeah, yeah, it's been, and, and I am very cautious to try to define what what I'm interacting with. You yes. know, I mean, there's there's some folks um, who are very quick to tell me what I'm interacting with, and well, yes, they're from Alpha Centauri, or they're from another dimension, or another time, or they're from the inside of the moon, or once again, how can you know the unknowable? Yeah, and and I have, um, you know. Uh, how to say this, the puzzle pieces that make up my set of experiences are on the table and there are lots of great big holes in that puzzle mm. that, that, that maybe you could infer that, that you know, um, would be the abduction phenomena. But until those puzzle pieces get filled in in a way that I trust, <laughs> um, I simply can't, uh, you know, name myself yeah. or as that. What I can say very strongly is that something is going on and something has interacted with my life. Uh, though I'm not quite sure. Well, you can. Is. That is, I, I think it's always best to uh, err on the side of, of temperance in a way. And um, I'm, what you just said <laughs> is about as accurate a characterization as I could come up with, being completely honest. Um, Bud at times would remark that we were dealing with a flat out mystery. And, you know, like the story of the seven blind men trying to um, describe an elephant, one holding the trunk, one holding the tail, other ones feeling around the sides, you're getting seven different descriptions. Um, we're not the skeptics. We should all be skeptical. And the best of us in the field should reignite our skepticism every time we approach a new case um, to keep things as, as straight up and... Um, you know, straightforward and honest as possible, um, where the debunkers, they know that this phenomena is not authentic. They know that there is no such thing as UFOs. Why? Because there can't be. 
the result, therefore they must be something else. And witnesses like me, experiencers, abductees like you and my sister and listeners and so many other people, um, you are either deluded, you're a liar, you're a hoaxer, a very rare phenomena, but it's one that's put forward a lot. Um, you're a publicity hound, you're a mischief maker, you want to write a best-selling book, you want to be on the Oprah show. It can't be what it purports to be because that's crazy. And that is the world we live in. It's schizophrenic, and we live among people who are kind of, you know, well-meaning, but as far as I'm concerned, um, they can be the dearest people in the world, but they are sleepwalking their way through any acknowledgement of this reality. And um, so they they come to look at people like us uh, brilliantly, brilliantly supported by the media's uh, historic naysaying and debunking from the summer of 1947 on um, as uh, outsiders at best and, you know, maybe lonely people who get a charge out of living this fantasy life or that they see it as kind of a new age religion. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist. There are folks who have uh, deified UFOs and aliens, and, you know, there are even some major proponents of the subject that say they're all good. Uh, every abduction except for three have been military abductions, uh, a subject that um, I have not studied much. I'm not saying I don't think it hasn't happened, but... Um, Again, there is an unwillingness and an understandable unwillingness to accept this um, because it's it's too threatening, its implications are too shattering, and because society seems to have positioned you to uh, the moment that you open your mouth and say nothing more than, I saw something in the sky that I had never seen before or couldn't recognize or looked strange to me. The uh, the conditioning that we in the Western world have, have uh, been subjected to over the decades, people see your mouth moving, but what they hear on a certain level is, hi, I'm crazy, you don't want to get stuck in an elevator with me, I believe in little green men, and I'm sure Martians are among us, and blah, 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 and that cliche, although things are changing, you know, one person, seven people at a time, whatever, for the better... It's still a very long process, and I don't think one that would change if, um, you know, we tried to apply a solution of a mass movement like existed um, in the 60s and early 70s in terms of the anti-Vietnam movement, which um, I was certainly a part of as a student, and um, where after a while, you know, we had a critical mass of people in the United States who realized that this war was wrong and that the rationale was not true. And ultimately, we got out of it. Um, and there are proponents within the field that feel that building a mass movement like this will affect that kind of change. Um, I, I hope it's true, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see that as the thing that was gonna, is going to break this story open. I, I agree. I'm just I'm skeptical of, of the... Uh... You know the the uh, the only thing that I think can be done is just on a on a grassroots level is just to have a sharing and an openness about the subject yeah. and um, uh, you know little by little and I'm sure you've recognized this too where you bring the subject up in you know polite circles let's say and <laughs> and um, you know 
more often than I'm, I'm often shocked at how often it happens that someone will say, oh, yeah, I saw something, or, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, I, my next door neighbor oh my told gosh. me this story. Isn't or, it true? Yeah, and, and I'm, my, so my Absolutely thought is that, that there's a population that's uh, just keeping their, you know, like uh, keeping their lips buttoned. Oh, count on it. Count on it. We all have friends who um, may have seen nothing more than an unusual or unexplained or unidentified flying object, uh, most of which, if not the great majority of which, probably are explainable in somewhat conventional terms, even if they're conventional, unconventional terms, black projects, machines that we human beings have up in the air that seem to fulfill the profile of, of you know, something close to science fiction. But, oh yes, oh yes, and because we're fairly, uh, you know, public in our uh, presence on this subject, we are often the people that other people will confide such a detail in. I remember um, a couple of years ago, and it's just a good example, I think, I had been contracted to give a talk uh, locally here in central New York State, and a local company was going to um, sponsor it and pick up my fee, and it was going to be a fundraiser for a nonprofit. Uh, However, the CEO and some of their board members wanted to meet me before agreeing to this. <clears throat> and I showed up at their offices on the appointed morning, and um, they were nice business people, and they sat on one side of a conference table. I sat on the other. They asked me some questions. There were only four of them. And um, then put me on the spot as well they should and said, okay, we want to get an idea of what you are like a speaker. Give us a talk. I said, what do you mean? Give us a talk right now on UFOs. I said, how long do you want it to be? They said, half an hour. I did it, and we all got up and shook hands. They said, great. For a number of reasons, it, it, the talk didn't happen. But as we were saying goodbye, two of the four took me aside and said, you know, I wouldn't say this normally, but on a camping trip four years ago, and the only one I was with my wife, and blah, 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 and two of the four had had sightings. I mean, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but a lot of us tend to look up. Uh, as often as down or out, and we see stuff. And again, this is something that you're not supposed to see that can't be. And so, you know, why put yourself on the spot, risk ridicule or ostracization or whatever by, um, you know, taking a radical position on it or what many people feel is a radical position, i.e. saying you take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, and I've had the same experience where I've just, as a, as just a point now, when I'm in a group of folks, I'll just kind of like, hey, anything weird happened to you? And then, you know, it seems like about 50% of the people share something. Some of them aren't uh, what would be UFO-related things, but they're they're uh, decidedly odd and strange in a way. Here, I'll tell you one story where, um, you know, I, I said this, and this guy said, you know, I was, I was a kid, I was walking home from school, and there was this one road that kind of cut through a field, and I walked through it. And there was a car parked there, and there was a woman sitting in the car, and she was in the driver's seat, and she was kind of looking down, and it seemed like she was leafing through something as if she was, she was uh, looking at papers, you know, like, so she was, you know, she was refu- reviewing some notes or something that would have been on paper in her lap, and, you know, that seemed utterly normal. And in the passenger side of the car was a gray alien, like a big-headed gray alien sitting there, and... The gray alien, she seemed completely oblivious to it, as if as if she was incapable of seeing it. And then as I walked, 
you know, past the car, the the alien head, you know, the, like stared at me, and he he said he had to walk, you know, within a few feet of the car. The car was basically parked on this this uh, you know uh, lonesome road that that connected two other roads, and that that a boy would use, you know, going to and from school, let's say. And um, so he was he was basically watched, and he felt very uncomfortable by this this what amounted to a gray alien uh, sitting next to this woman who for all uh, intent and purpose was was uh, you know oblivious to it and wow. he walked on and walked past it and and I just thought that was incredibly strange <laughs> so there's a there's a story that doesn't involve UFOs it doesn't involve flying saucers it doesn't involve uh, you know and I don't know quite what to make of it and he's you know this guy that I you know he's got no reason to pull my leg and and uh, and you could tell when he was telling the story that you could just see the, the the question mark above his head, like yeah, it was so strange. I don't even know what to think of it. You know, I can't even mm. fit it in my brain. Yeah, pretty intense. And that was just the only reason I heard that story is because I just spoke up and said, hey, you know, anything strange happened to anyone here? And it was just in a in a group of people, and he shared that story, and yeah, very 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 weird. <laughs> so Amen. so hey um so uh, yeah. Uh, let's get back to Bud, and then, yeah. um, uh, right. you know, um, given the limited time we have, you know, we'll never cover all the relevant things about No, about let me Bud pick up and... where I left off, though. Right. Uh, basically, um, in 1976, I was teaching painting at the School of Visual Arts. I um, was uh, a... Um, a day laborer uh, working in the Soho district of New York during the building boom as it became, you know, the big New York art neighborhood, in which it remained and still is to some great degree for years, um, and living in New York's Chinatown. And um, again, now at this point, I'm pretty obsessed with the subject. I'm buying books. Um, I'm not interested really in meeting anybody that alleges to be a UFO researcher because I figure they're crazy. I know Helen and me are and we know what happened to us, but how can I? And one very life-changing afternoon, I picked up a copy of our uh, weekly The Village Voice, and I read an article on what uh, on, a, on a terrific UFO incident that had occurred the year before in New Jersey, and it was a wonderfully written article, very analytical, very straightforward, very detailed and documented, by a guy named Bud Hopkins, and um, I was really excited. You know, here was somebody who sounded absolutely sane, and the Village Voice, which is, you know, progressive weekly and not known for UFO stories. I don't remember ever reading another one in there. Um, I knew the name because I was a painter, and he was a painter, and I think I had seen his work at a gallery once, but um, I cold called him out of the New York City phone book. There is, was only one Bud Hopkins uh, with two D's and maybe one D in New York, and we chatted, and he invited me over and came over, and we had coffee a few days later. And our friendship began there. And then five years later, I mean, we stayed in touch and saw each other regularly, but five years later, in 81, um, his seminal book, Missing Time, the first of his books, was published, and he became Bud Hopkins, the well-known UFO abduction researcher. And uh, some years after that, I actually began to work with him and for him and did so for several decades thereafter and went on to have the great good fortune of having him as a dear friend, uh, a close and 
trusted and esteemed colleague, um, uh, a fellow artist, um, somebody who I absolutely adored and respected. Um, you know, he wasn't perfect, who is? But um, I think he's a wonderful role model, and um, I am eternally thankful for the 35 years of friendship that I had with him and the adventures that we had together and the hair-raising and rough times and uh, the fun times and um, his his recent death, even though we had plenty of warning, um, was still very difficult for me. Yes, and and uh, and I was um, glad that I had a chance to talk to him. I talked to him just a few months before he died, and, yes. and just called but him. He up liked the you blue. very much, Mike. He really did. We talked about you after you guys first met, and um, you know you were, and you are. You know, totally straight up. Um, you're extremely forthcoming about, you know, your own questions and the fact that for all of us, we're just trying to do our best about wrapping our head around this thing and making some sense of it and acting in turn as educators as we're able informally or formally for the public at large. Uh, so I'm I'm so glad that you and him had a chance to get to know each other and have a relationship as well. Yeah, yeah, and it, it meant a lot to me, and it, it was also, and I and I will say, I was in a place where where I was, um, you know, very serious about looking into this. So I didn't, um, you know, like if he said something that that didn't match what I felt or matched my personal experience, I would, you know, chime in and say, "Oh, no, 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 back up this. That wasn't quite right." And um, so, uh, and and there was a few things, you know, we went back and forth on that that. Uh, uh, one of the things that that had happened in my set of experiences was I was having these, and they still continue to this day. And it, and it basically started when I started looking into it, um, mm-hmm. when I, you know, f- aggressively started trying to make sense of my own set of experiences. I was having uh, what were clearly psychic experiences where I would have mm-hmm. like ESP flashes. I couldn't control them. They didn't make sense. Oftentimes they were based on perfectly mundane things that I, that I had a, a, a knowing of. And it, it absolutely paralleled when I started looking into this. So it felt like, uh, you know, uh, that was a, a paranormal aspect of, of looking into this that I did not expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is not, unusual. And again, making sense of it, um, good luck. I know also, you know, there are stories of um, and accounts of people who have, after the fact, after they have had an you know, experience or really uh, begun to look at, you know, this part of their lives, uh, that they become extremely good at something that they were not knowledgeable about before and a number of cases of the opposite. Uh, I'm reminded of Mike Rogers, uh, a logger in Snowflake, um, uh, Arizona, who at the time in 1976, as I recall, or 75, was best friend of a guy named Travis Walton, and who, of course, uh, was a witness to Travis's being knocked unconscious uh, by this blue light from this huge disc covering in the forest. And uh, once all was sorted out, and this was, I don't think, covered at all um, in the movie Fire in the Sky, Mike was no artist, you know, it was not an interest of his, it was not a passion. But after the experience, he seemingly, spontaneously developed the ability to do fully professional um, artwork. And one of the most interesting 
aspects of, of Travis's unique and wonderful book, Fire in the Sky, is, I, I don't know how it is in later editions, but I know in the first edition, it's illustrated with these very impacting and, and certainly uh, first-rate illustrations by Mike. Um, again, it's an adjunct uh, to, um, you know, when you opened up in one area, maybe we can presuppose that you're opened up in another area somewhat. Um, but it's all theoretical. Well, I mean, it's 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 these these anecdotal patterns that we see that are that are ignored by, um, oh, you know, the late night TV documentaries, which um, which uh, tell a tiny sliver of the story, but the but the the bigger story is so much richer and and oftentimes stranger than what you would get if you only talked to you know, or if you only um, got your information from these. Uh, you know, from from what would be um, sort of exploitative or tabloid type information. You know that that I didn't know that, but that makes mm-hmm. that matches very much what I've you know encountered talking to folks. Yeah. So so you and your sister were on the front lawn. Yeah. And um, you saw the five discs. Yeah. And then there was a what amounts to a missing time event for both of you. Well, um, I guess you could say that. Um, we watched and watched for probably several minutes, and that's an awfully long time to look at something like that. And again, I should say here, I was a straight little arrow. Um, I had enjoyed my share of you know B-movies growing up, the wonderful cheapo black and whites that were generated in the earlier 60s, uh, among others, uh, about you know such subjects. But thinking back on it now, for me, I think the implied message never uh, spoken from um, the adult world was that, you know, UFOs are real, of course, but in these kind of movies, and the subject itself is not really worth paying attention to because it's not factual. But there they were. They were round. Um, they had the ability to hover without a sound. They came at a high rate of speed. And I went through a reaction looking at them that um, I have documented in so many people that I've interviewed who have had close sightings or events um, that I call the checklist reaction. And for me, it went like this, basically. Um, They're not planes, kites, balloons, uh, helicopters, blimps, strange-shaped clouds, uh, reflections from the ground, oh my God, what are they? And at that point, I kind of felt the bottom fall out for me a bit. I experienced what I can only describe as kind of a cosmic loneliness. Um, I realized that um, I was looking at something that I was told wasn't exist, wasn't real, didn't exist, and yet there they were. And at a certain point, I had had it. I mean, I had had it. My anxiety was that pitched that I had made a decision to run into the house and tell our mom, who was in the kitchen making us lunch. And in the course of that very brief run across the front lawn, in a matter of two or three seconds, um, something happened to me that was so compelling that I kind of forgot about why I was running into the house. And I think any sane listener is going to say, whoa, stop the tape. That's nuts. How can you forget about the most amazing thing that you've ever seen? Well, because within a second, I thought 
my full experience was that I was running through molasses. I everything had slowed down tremendously, and there was absolutely not only was there no fear or no anxiety. I thought it was fascinating, and you know, I, I might have even enjoyed the experience, so to say. And another phenomena that we have repeatedly um, throughout such accounts is people who, within a split second, say, oh, gee, you know, I think I'm tired. I think I'll take a nap, or I wonder what's on TV, or, you know, the most mundane thing when this thing is hovering over your head or your house or whatever. And my last three conscious memories before I went out um, was what a beautiful day it was. Oh, I, I was falling now. I had lost all muscular coordination. Is the only way I can characterize it. And um, in real life, I guess I was actually falling at normal speed and in toward our walkway that led up the lawn. And as I was coming down, um, I was looking at the ants, you know, creating their civilization in the crack in the sidewalk and, you know, thought about that for a moment. Uh, my mom, who was a particularly good gardener, had beautiful um I think forsythia bushes in front of the house, and I remarked to myself um, how beautiful they looked that day. And my last thought, again, you know what I'm running away from here, was what a lovely afternoon it was. And bang, I'm out. Then now, I wake now, up. Was, yeah. Is this all consciously remembered? The what you've just shared just now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. Yes. Good. Okay. Go on. And I should re- I should say here that over the next two or three years. I decided uh, that I wanted to undergo um, hypnotic regression. Uh, first, because I was very concerned that, geez, if this happened to Helen, maybe it happened to me. Um, and I not only um, did full regressive hypnosis with Bud once our relationship was uh, up and running and he had been trained to do this kind of thing, but with two other independent um, uh, hypnotherapists. Uh, well, um, one was a hypnotherapist, and the other was a tough, no-nonsense New York City police detective who um, became a good friend and mentor as well. In fact, the first edition of Left at East Gate, uh, the book I wrote with Larry Warren about the Rendlesham Forest incident in the U.K. in 1980, has two dedications. One is uh, to Larry's mom, and the other is to Pete, who we lost uh, shortly before Larry and I um, began to work on the book together. Uh, and nothing came up in those regressions that remotely suggested to me that I had had an abduction experience as much as that I was knocked out when my sister did. And I woke up um, with a throbbing in my lower right arm, and it's very poignant to me hearing myself in regression because I am 14 again. I am just totally there. And I, I... scraped my arm as I came into the sidewalk. And I look at it, and my remark to myself is, wow, what a scab that's going to make. Now, you and I don't normally think like that, but a 14-year-old Oh, I know just what I was like at 14, yeah. yeah, Hey, it's the red badge of courage, baby. Look at that one. You got one like that? And um, I I got myself together. Helen was not there. They were gone. The things in the sky were gone. And I walked into the house. And on an intuition, I walked upstairs, and my Helen and my sister Anne shared a bedroom at the top of the stairs, and I looked in, and there was Helen looking out her back window at our backyard, and sort of a private moment, and I just went downstairs, and I 
walked into the kitchen, and I looked at my mom, who was in right profile at the stove, whatever she was making, and as near as I can remember, I said, Mom, Helen and I just saw some things in the sky over the Parker's house that looked like flying saucers from the movies. And years later, almost 15 years later, when Helen and I sat down and talked to our folks about this after we had done our best to sort it out between us, my mom, who doesn't remember this, um, she did something that was um, so intuitively right, I think, and that um, I've heard many stories to the contrary from parents who, in that moment where you know a youngster may confide something like that, their own anxiety kicks in or their own understanding of reality, and they'll say, "Oh dear, it probably you know was something else, but it just looked like that." My mom, at, at best, my mom just turned and she looked at me. And I was a very bad liar, and I didn't lie much as a kid. I never got away with it. And I was a good kid, and I had no reason to fabricate this, nor did Helen. And she just looked at me like I'm a real person and studied my face for a minute and just kind of silently acknowledged the communication and then went back to doing what she was doing in perhaps a more thoughtful manner. I should say here because um, regressive hypnosis, especially around this area, many people consider very controversial. For me, um, well applied and uh, without, you know, um, a, uh, a motive to manipulate the subject, um, it can be a very valuable tool. And at that point, in one of my regressions, the hypnotist said, I don't remember whether it was Bud or Pete or Harry, but they said, um, what time is it? And I said, I don't know. And they said, is there a clock in the kitchen? And I said, yes. They said, where is it? And I said, on the wall behind my mom to the upper right. And they said, look at the clock. What time is it? And I said, 20 after 12. <laughs> and we continued on from there. The next thing I knew, I was on my Schwinn bicycle, heading to the Rockville Center Public Library as fast as my pedals would get me. And this is the fairly early 60s, and um, there were libraries had not yet dumped much of their UFO collections, as many of them did in their 70s, because they were considered somewhat embarrassing. And so there were a number of books on UFOs and flying saucers. And so, so you went up. to the library within that minutes... Of this well, event. no, but within an hour or so, sure. Oh, wow, so great. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. And I, it was about a mile away. I, I simply took two books off the shelf, brought them back in my basket, went up to my bedroom, closed the door, and what I was looking for was somebody that would explain to me that what I had seen was completely conventional thing um, that could be explained away. And one was that, no, it was from Alpha Centauri or wherever, and the other was, and I, I um, again, working with hypnotist, it was, what book is it? I don't know. What does the cover look like? And then it's one of the most iconic covers of UFO books of the 50s, which is um, um, George Dembski and um, Desmond Leslie's Flying Saucers Have Landed. And both books completely were not what I was looking for, reinforced what I did not want to know, and I brought them back to the library the next day. Now, that's important for me as an investigator and in terms of my own history and my sister's, because when Helen and I finally did discuss this, again, almost 15 years later, I um, asked her whether there was anything else that she remembered about it, and I was careful not to tell her my memory at first, just to sort of set the scene, and she 
stop me mid-sentence and just blurted it all out. Um, and she thought about it and she said, yes, I went into your room that night to speak with you and you weren't there and I saw those two books on your desk. And I mean, that was the only night they were there and that's a remembered event from almost 15 years before. And um, over the next week or so, and I should say also, um, sometime that afternoon, my sister said, do you want to talk about what we saw? And I said, no. And one day led to the next week, led to the next month, led to the next year, and we didn't talk about it. Years later, um, when I was studying uh, psychology at night school at New York University, one of my professors, a brilliant man who took the subject very seriously, pointed out some things to me that helped me understand why my sisters and my reactions may have been so different. She never forgot it, ever, uh, but was fine about having it not be something she talked about. And my, my sister, Helen, again, at 12 years old, and just 12 years old, still may well have been on the cusp of real childhood. And for her, you know, this was somewhat magical. It was frightening. But she returned, and she was okay. And um, one of the things that was put in her head, and this is not unusual, is you're special. Uh, we love you. We've seen you before. We'll see you again, and other things like that. And when I asked her, you know, totally, you know, just on this pivotal day in my life, why we had never talked about it, she gently reminded me that she had introduced the topic and that I didn't want to and that I'm the older brother and she loved me and respected me, and so we never did. And everything changed on that day and was never the same after. Huh. Now, let's um, jump ahead to working with Bud. Now, the, one of the things I want to focus on here is that um, these experiences on the part of the of the uh, whether it be abductee or experiencer the person with the the, the life event that would bring them to bud um, uh, these experiences have the potential to be very traumatizing yes. and and whatever bud's role was as he was you know playing researcher he was also playing another role he was playing the role of of uh you know i you know he's not he's not a licensed psychologist or anything like that so he wasn't necessarily playing that role but he was playing the role of someone very compassionate and very supportive mm. and and that to me um in uh you know it's very very easy to play monday morning quarterback and critique <laughs> techniques and and you know what uh you know the 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 history of the abduction research and on and on and on mm. but um i uh, feel that those those aspects of it, you know, the actual investigation aspects, that are almost subordinate to the role of of, uh, of a kind listening ear and someone who's very yes. supportive. Yes, I think you're absolutely right there, and it was something that he was particularly good at because he cared, and because above all, um, but is. <laughs> hard to talk about somebody you've known for so long in the past tense, but was a humanist. And the individuals who came to him, specifically the ones who were deeply traumatized, the Western world does not prepare us for things like this. Um, and then you're ostracized if you do come forward. It's, you know, to be blunt and something Bud had pointed out early on, it's like being made fun of for having been raped because, you know, people 
recognize rape as a real phenomena, but alien abduction, I, and that's even a, a misnomer. I, I'm, I am usually careful not to use that abduction by other intelligences, whatever is going on here, um, is not um, a socially accepted norm. Um, and while he was a, like many artists, an endlessly curious person, and turned out a, a, a brilliant detective and investigator, uh, again, growing up and living, well, living out of the box as a professional, as a quote-unquote artist, that's something that I know all too well. Um, life trains you to handle the unusual or to look at it from an angle that, you know, maybe a lot of regular folks don't. Uh, but his desire to learn more about this chronicle it, uh, and ultimately become this, you know, the figure that he emerged as, this world-famous pioneering researcher of as important a subject as humanity has ever faced, and I'm sure he will be recognized as such in future. Maybe we won't get to see it, but, you know, his name will be known. Um, that it was tempered by his caring about and kindness and patience toward individuals who were struggling with this, in many cases, you know, to the extent of anything else in their life. And um, it's one of the greatest assets that an investigator, a researcher, uh, an inquirer in this field can have. You don't need any technical training to be a compassionate, decent individual. And um, he was those things, to be sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the side of him I definitely saw. Um, uh, and I thought that I was very impressed with, mm. with that side of him. And, and I met with him, it would have been um, 2007, uh, a little bit. I went back in 2008, and that was the last time I saw him in person. We spoke on the phone a little bit after that. Um, and uh, so, so that was... Um, you know, I definitely saw that side of him, and and one of the things that was happening when I was working on the documentary, some of the times I spent with him, was in front of a camera, and mm. and you know, I don't know how charismatic I am as far as a, you know <laughs> presence on a camera, but um, I definitely was nervous in front of the camera, and then um, some of the other times I spent with him was without a camera, and uh, you know, I feel like. Uh, a f something was turned down a few notches, so so I think we we were capable of having a little more of a heart to heart on on these type of yeah. things. It's only natural. Um, Bud video recorded um, a great deal of the interviews that he did, but probably overwhelmingly um, audio taped um, literally all the interviews that he did uh, and all the regressive sessions. I know because I, I filed hundreds of them over the years. Um, I'm pretty pathological about just working with audio tape as an aside because I think the moment you aim a camera at somebody, they become self-conscious. And, you know, there you are uh, approaching perhaps one of the most traumatic events of your life and wondering how you're going to look. Uh, for me, an audio recording, um, you know, you let go of that in your mind in a, in a very quickly and you move on and the thing becomes pretty much invisible. Yeah, yeah, and so um, you know, in 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 retrospect, I wish I had recorded. Uh, I spent about three hours with him in October of two thousand and eight, uh, talking about 
my experiences and some of the more peripheral things that just seemed odd and outlying. And he was, he was very helpful. And in retrospect, I really wish I had recorded that conversation, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. um, one of the things that, uh, that, um, I wanted to ask was Bud had his own UFO sighting and that would have been in the very early 1960s in, in, on Long Island. I, um, actually, I think it was, um, I think it was in 65 on Cape Cod where he had a home, um, for more than 50 years. And it happened while he was walking along a beach, uh, on an overcast afternoon. And this disc shaped object just tracked across the sky and, it stuck in his mind and stayed with him, and I think it's fair to say up until then, uh, and he discusses this in detail in his remarkable um, memoir, which I'm so glad he was able to publish before he passed. It was, uh, It is a book that, well, it's very singular. There's no other book like it in UFO uh, literature, and it, it belongs among some of the most compelling memoirs of 20th century Americans. Um, and it's called Art, Life, and UFOs. And um, again, the subject now stuck in his mind. I don't think I know that, you know, the subject really didn't make a, much of a dent of him, uh, you know, on him when he was younger and the whole phenomena blew up in the later 40s. Um, but it wasn't until, I believe, 75 when he met George Obarski, um, the witness in this case that he wrote about that introduced me to him um, in this New Jersey incident, uh, who was a local merchant in his neighborhood, ran a liquor store, and, you know, uh, was also a teetotaler, um, which was sort of a neighborhood joke, and was deeply traumatized by the event that had happened to him. And... um, the year after um, we met in 1977, I'm proud to say we both did our very first UFO presentations from the stage together um, at the School of Visual Arts where I was teaching. They were always interested in quote-unquote interesting speakers, and he certainly qualified there. And um, he brought with him George and an old um, member of NICAP, which the precursor National UFO Organization to MUFON, and that was my and his very first talk. And um, but yeah, he um, his 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 sighting was in, in '65, as I recall, but can confirm that um, in Art Life and UFOs. Again, that's a book uh, that I hope people um, consider purchasing and adding to their library. It's a wonderful book. Yeah, and I have it on my shelf here, and I have not read yeah. the entire thing, but I have I've lived <laughs> through it, and it just seems like sometimes I'm just swamped under books that I want to oh, yeah. read. Um, so now, many books, so little time, as yeah, they say. So, so Bud had a daylight sighting of a disc, yes. and and I just know, having dealt with him, when, when if, if someone had come to him and mm. said that he had a daylight sighting as a disc, he would have probably uh, looked at it with his abduction investigator glasses on, let's say, yes. and then and then so... Uh, does what's your stance? And I know that in the UFO community, which is partially made up of uh, researchers and and then you know partially made up of enthusiasts, you know there yes. has there is sure. whisperings. You know, was Bud an abductee himself? <laughs> um, I doubt it. Um, anything is possible, of course. But in thirty-five years, I never had an intuition of that. Um, by the same token, I'm sure there are people that think or feel or quote-unquote know that I was. 
Um, for me, um, I can't think of anything farther from the truth. And in fact, and I can't apply this to Bud, but I know in my case, I feel in my heart if I had learned in one of those abductions or had something rattled loose in the intervening years and I did come to feel that way, that the last place I would want to be and the last thing I would want to be doing was re-experiencing this through the accounts of others. Uh, also, as you're aware, over the years um, that he and other key abduction researchers uh, were involved in essentially pioneering a new field of study, that we developed a profile um, of folks who um, seemed authentic, and it was a rather long, complex one. But, you know, it's sort of a checklist of strange phobias, unusual health histories, um, a history of other people in the family who claimed similar events, uh, unaccounted scarification on the body, um, anomalous objects picked up within the body um, one way or another that turned out to be what we call implants, um, that nothing, you know, a pathological fear, irrational as it might be, of a location that never, you know, might be a beautiful little part of a, a park or something that you never want to visit again, um, a fear of looking at two eggs frying in a frying pan, wonderfully characterized by uh, the uh, made-for-TV uh, version of um, Intruders uh, the, and CBS in the early 80s. Uh, not that I, I don't, I know anybody who is afraid of looking at two fried eggs, but things like that. Um, and, yeah, um, anybody can think what they want. Um, for me, again, I can only say I think that if it happened to me, again, the last thing I would have wanted to do would be to re-experience it through the experiences of others. Uh, I know my sister, like many abductees, who loved Bud, and he loved her. Um, one of the two times in my life I ever saw Bud in tears was after my sister died. Um, the other time was when the Intruders Foundation was so broke. I mean, I was soaking stamps off of envelopes, and, you know, we were wondering where our next nickel was coming from to continue trying to do this work. Um, it just caused him tremendous stress at times and was not a good thing for his private life, his family life. Um, and the New York art world is a very unforgiving mistress. I know people um, who put him down because it is not an area where you can have a dual alliance. You know, you are either a painter or you're a something else, and a painter, UFO investigator, please, you know, that immediately demeans you in the world of, you know, sacrosanct, first-level, high-up, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein level, you know, art world in New York, certainly at the time. Um, so he really paid a price for it. But, you know, uh, again, anybody can think what they want. I, have, I, I never had a moment where I had a sense of that, and um, I had no sense that he did either. Okay, that's interesting because I just wanted to ask that because that is yeah, something that's that a gets very whispered. good question, and that is something that um, I'm just going to give an example. And he spoke about it, uh, you know, just straight up was uh, uh, Joe Montaldo, basically, you know, says that you know he would think that that Bud would have been an abductee just having had having had a uh, close up uh, daylight sighting like that. Uh, and mm -hmm. then going on to to do the research he did, which is yeah. an also a sort of a, seemed to go hand in hand. And uh, and you have probably experienced this also, where you talk to researchers, and I could think of some, which I'm going to choose not to name here, um, 
that in their public life, you know, say they're a UFO researcher and they go on and, you know, they, they uh, are doing abduction research and then you talk to them privately and then they say like, oh yes, I've had that experience in my own life. Mm. And I'm just, yes. And uh, yeah, it's well. You know, I I know and like Joe, and um, he's done a lot of good work over the years. But he's making an assumption there, based on belief, as far as I'm concerned, as well as you know what he feels is you know his quantum knowledge on the thing, and um, that's his opinion, and he's certainly entitled to it. Yes, in 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 um, you know whatever it's how to say this. I I uh, I pay it very close attention to. Uh, uh, people's first-hand accounts, people's stories, um, yes. what they share. And then, you know, like I, I take that back a bunch of notches when people start giving opinions or conclusions. So I think every single person in this field, no matter who you talk to, uh, has divergent conclusions. Uh, and that sure. just to me says that, you know, no one has the right answer. Though, um, <laughs> you know, where, where the interesting stuff is, is in the, is in the data, is in the first-hand stories. You got that right. Yeah. Um, hey, one of the things that I, I have here in front of me as some notes was David Biedney attended the, the memorial for Bud, which took place yes. uh, in early October. And I just want to read what he wrote. Yes. Um, and uh, this is just a few sentences that ends a, a little report. He just, had a, he just shared his, uh, his feelings about going to the memorial. And this is uh, from someone, and David Biedney is someone who has had profoundly strange life events, though very few of them would point to any sort of, like, abduction thing. So here's someone... Well, you should also mention that David uh, is a a distinguished commentator on the subject and broadcaster and somebody who I have a lot of admiration for in that respect. Yes, and he is also someone who has dropped out of the broadcasting uh, and, mm-hmm. and of, yeah. of the UFO thing, and, and right. basically he just was exasperated and just didn't need the the, the hassles that came along with it. So, um, and he was also uh, quite close with Bud. I know him and Bud spoke uh, at length on many occasions privately, and also did uh, you know audio interviews that that are posted publicly. So, so here's what he wrote to those who do, excuse me. I'll start over again. Mm-hmm. To those who would attack his research and accuse him of being a flawed human, of not being 100% hard-ass about his dealings with alleged abduction victims and potential hoaxers, I personally witnessed the degree of comfort this brave man gave to some very distraught people, folks who were scared, confused, and didn't have anyone to turn to without being marginalized or ridiculed, and for that work alone he should be celebrated and respected." If he was fooled by some unscrupulous folks, his decision to err on the side of kindness and compassion is perhaps a byproduct of his intensely powerful humanity and sincere desire to help others. Those who would vilify him would be well advised to check their own glass houses for hidden piles of rocks. Bud Hopkins was a great man, and I, for one, will miss him something urgent. Wow, way to go, David. That's that's so well said. And um, I, I saw David at the memorial, of course. We didn't get a, a chance to chat. It was just one of those afternoons, but well said and, and, and very well characterized, I think. And this is where I'm coming from. It, it seems like when I, as I go further down this path, and this is me personally, and um, I am less concerned with the... Uh, you know, I, I feel like we're peering into a genuine mystery. So any investigative 
uh, standards to look into a mystery so elusive are yes. going to be fraught with uh, flaws. Um, and going to be open to every level of attack because the one thing we know absolutely categorically is that we're not exactly sure what we're dealing with here. And the fact is we're as likely as not, and probably more likely, is that we're dealing with a number of overlapping phenomena or intelligences, be they from other planets, universes, solar systems, times, dimensions, or fill in your own subject, people that live in, you know, 50 miles down from us. I, so, yes, uh, there is that hubris uh, of people who will tell you um, and, and with great authority uh, that, you know, the Earth has been visited for 427,000 years by 23 different types of aliens, and these ones come from, uh, you know, the dog star system um, of Sirius, and they are here for these purposes, and they eat dust, mice, and electricity, and they are in these kinds of ships and dress in these clothes, and they look this way. For me, that's such total and complete BS and uh, hyperbolic nonsense, I, I have very little patience for it, even if in the deepest, most sincere way, um, they absolutely believe it when questioned. And people have come up to me over the years, especially at conferences, and told me exactly what's going on. Uh, and you want to be polite, but when you, you know, you only have a few options of response, like, how do you know this? And they only have a few options of answering, which is, they told me. Um, it came to me in a dream. I read it in a book. I saw it on a documentary. Um, and how can you know that the source that you got it from, that they know, uh, or that they're telling the truth? One thing Bud was fond of saying was, you can't trust them any more than you can trust the United States Air Force. And I'm constantly... Um, I'm, kind of interested by how many people, you know, do absolutely accept a given set of beliefs as factual. Um, one of the tangents that this got me off on in my studies over the years was um, fundamentalist, religious fundamentalist beliefs regarding this phenomena. And within Christian fundamentalism, there are UFO researchers, and some of them extremely nice people, but they know that there is no such thing as an alien from another planet. Why? Because it is not absolutely, specifically, and categorically stated as such in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Therefore, their deduction, and it's the only one that can be made, is that any intelligences or high-tech seeming machines that are truly anomalous and that can't be dismissed are all demonic in origin and are piloted by minions of Satan. And every argument point that one would make, you know, um, is refuted based on that absolute knowledge. Um, fundamentalism is a dangerous thing, and it applies to Christianity no more than it does to any other religion or any secular belief. Or, or UFO research. I think that there well, are course. fundamentalists in there, too. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And essentially it's a way of saying, I am inflexible in my thinking. There is no room for interpretation. This is the way it is. Uh, I think behind that is a great deal of insecurity, anxiety, uh, a, a sense that if this is true, then, gee whiz, what else in my belief system is open to question? And that is not okay for certain people, and I feel bad for them. 
because yeah, and, they're and, stuck. And and you and I differ a little bit. Where I I find that the psychological phenomena, and I am not a psychologist or, or in any way, shape, or form, but I find that the the very human drama that surrounds this whole phenomena is is to me very fascinating. So I do engage those folks, uh, let's say at UFO conferences, and and uh, and I listen carefully. And, um, you know, I'm listening on two levels, one, to see what sort of patterns show up and two, um, well, two, just to, just to listen, you know, I mean, these are real people and they have a real story to tell. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, I recognize that there's human frailty in all of this and these people have been dragged down perhaps a road that I don't see eye to eye with, um, uh, one of the things that that has happened to me is as I sit, I've sat in a handful of what amount to uh, experiencer support groups where you sit in a circle and uh, very much like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and people share their stories. And I find about, and this is purely anecdotal and I have no way to back this up, but it <laughs> seems about 60% of the people have, you know, love and light, um, you know, <laughs> benevolent angel stories. And about 40% of the people have, uh, you know, dealing with dark, uncaring, malevolent doctors. <laughs> well, uh, that shows that we've sat in on different support groups over the years. <laughs> and and I think we have. And, and I'll tell you quite straight up, the, the only place I've ever sat in a support group is at the UFO Congress uh, in Laughlin, Nevada. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so yeah. that's that, that I feel very strongly my data is skewed. Um, and I don't feel I have any kind of uh, accurate cross-section of, of what would be a, 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 an accurate population of people who, mm. who might, uh, you know, give better data. Um, but uh, so... Uh, you know, so I have sat and listened to those stories, and those stories, um, you know, I think dismissing them outright to me is is something that I'm not interested in. At the same time, I, uh, you know, like uh, embracing them fully is something that I that I, uh, I, I just I don't have it in me to do. Yeah. Well, for me, um, most of the people, the majority of the people, serious majority uh, of the folks that. I've spent time with, work with, um, come to know, are people who um, have had problems with this um, and sometimes great difficulties. But transcendence is very real, even if you're a pragmatic, real-world nuts and bolts, you know, um, product of of the Western world. Um, We human beings are extraordinarily resilient, and for me, rather than the welcome the space brothers model and you know if somebody feels that way wonderful if it inspires them in their life i only wish them well and would never want to um do anything to disrupt that whether or not um it's based on um, an authenticity or whether or not there are layers of anxiety fear terror behind it that they are doing their best to put on a happy face about or whether or not it's truly from the heart has a lot to do with a lot of conventional things about who you are and how you grew up and you know what belief system you embrace uh for example if i know that um years ago i read about a study done in the state of california about people who had had these experiences and Many um, of the people, a good number, a uh, respectable number of the folks who responded to the survey may uh, 
included the fact that they followed a Buddhist path or, or didn't, you know, identify themselves as Buddhists. And in great part, I think it's fair to say because of the nature of Buddhism and Buddhist beliefs and transcendence and embracing the unusual as, you know, one would embrace the norm uh, and looking to the positive, um, that they reported the highest <clears throat> statistical incidence of people who reported uh, that this was, you know, something positive in their life, certainly looking back on it at a certain point. Um, well and good. <clears throat> but, um, again, the Western world has done nothing to prepare us for this aspect of reality. And no question about it, um, we're all stuck with the fact that um, um, we must wrestle with this on our own terms and that what's right, what somebody says is right for them or what is the truth for them may not necessarily be the truth for you. But getting back to my original point, when I saw people over the years especially in a support group setting, and let me be very specific here, Bud never ever represented himself or purported to be a therapist of any sort, which is something that I occasionally saw him attacked for behind his back, never to his face. <clears throat> but anybody who has ever um, been a part of a support group on any of a thousand subjects uh, or understands the dynamic which just has a basic, you know, common sense knowledge of human behavior, would understand that if you are in a group of people where you share something in common, and rarely I think most support groups are about dealing with something not positive and, you know, um, finding your way to deal with it, in part inspired by or understanding that you're not alone, um, you can have a positive result. And I saw quite a number of people for me, achieve something phenomenal. And it went something like this. I have had experiences where I am floated through a solid wall or window taken by beings from another place or dimension or whatever, put through procedures that I find terrifying or at best very anxiety-provoking, returned home knowing I'm not stupid and I know if I talk about this, I'm going to be ostracized and this is my secret life and you know, it helped, it runs me to a good degree, but <clears throat> now that I've spent time with other people who I've come to know and seem, you know, as decent and regular and respects as other people that I know have not had these experiences, and I realize this has happened, and it does happen, even if it's an outsider subject, to put it mildly, and I see them getting on with their lives that even though this could happen again, um, it's not making them buckle and be a victim of it. They are. Um, they still want to fall in love with somebody. They want to start their own business. They want to be a success at something. They want to be, you know, decent contributing members of society. And for me, the best thing that would happen would be after a certain amount of time, be it months or, you know, a year or longer, that they would simply leave the group and get back to the business of living their life. For me, that is world-class, and it constantly inspired me. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so whether it's, it's a conventional transcendence like that or, you know, um, like other people I know, and quite a number I, I really care about and respect, 
who, you know, yes, it is welcome the Space Brothers, and they're here to help us and, you know, bring us into the age of Aquarius and cure cancer and have us all be together, you know, on Earth. Um, who am I to say that that is, you know, not, you know, real or sincere just because it's not my experience or, or my best informed opinion based on my own, you know, observations. Uh, one thing, well, a number of things, among other things that working in this field has taught me is that um, being of service, which is the way I grew up, a message that was pounded into, well, you know, gently into me, that part of the reason that we're here is to be of value to other people and not just to greedily go after our own goals with no concern for others. In fact, um, I spent eight years working as a crisis intervention volunteer on the busiest suicide hotline in the United States in New York City for a wonderful international organizations call, organization called um, the Samaritans International. And um, I'm, I, I have the bad habit occasionally of just talking and not listening, but I have developed a very good habit being a very good listener and understanding the value that being a good listener can be to someone who is traumatized or sad or upset or, you know, considering taking their own life. Um, and for me, there is no substitute for kindness and for patience and for respect of what we don't understand as starting principles. Um, when I mentioned earlier that I approach each new case with my skeptical gears engaged, I think I need to expand on that just a little bit, which is to say that I no longer, I am one of those people, maybe you see yourself the same way, uh, Bud, my sister, any number of others in the same category, I no longer have the luxury of disbelief. I have been convinced by actual evidence of the kind one could bring to court, physical evidences, multiple witnesses, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, that the phenomena that we're talking about is very real indeed. And knowing that is true is not necessarily an asset when you begin a new investigation, because there is that temptation, which colleagues of mine are, um, you know, prey to, of, I know it's real. And I'm going to assume, in good faith, that yours is real, too. So let's just get right to it. What did the spaceship look like? You, that can, I mean, it's just not a good investigative technique. One should begin each new investigation with deductive reasoning and eliminate every mundane, everyday, rudimentary, routine explanation. And once done, go one level up to the next most mundane possibility. And once you have done your initial investigation and none of regular world solutions suggest themselves as an answer, that's when you begin looking into the extraordinary possibilities. Um, I think that is something, well, it is something I pride myself on, and, and rightly so, I think. Uh, but it does take a certain amount of discipline, because again, I will say flat out, I know this is real. I've seen them. People said, do you believe in UFOs? And I, you know, <laughs> I, I try not to be, you know, snappish or sarcastic, but you want to say, do you believe in the chair you're sitting in? Belief has nothing to do with it. This is not a matter of faith or belief. It's a matter of real-world experience 
and of building up enough data. And if I never did another investigation in my life, the nine solid years that Larry Warren and I spent investigating the Rendlesham Forest incident, uh, which was a very thankless period of time and turned us both into people who were obsessed and, well, he was already obsessed, but we went through every bit of savings we had. We sold things. We just went on for almost a decade. Very gratifying to end up with a a real best-selling book in the United Kingdom and a lot of acknowledgement, and our lives have never been the same since. But that is a case that if courts of law adjudicated such things, I would take that into court, and I would win that case, uh, at least that the uh, no jury or no judge could dismiss it as a matter of mind or belief. It's as real as the chairs we are sitting on, Mike, and I don't have to tell you that. Yeah, it's sort of gone from belief to knowing that that said, I don't know quite what I know. You know what I mean? It's like I, it's hard, <laughs> yeah, right. to, it's hard that, that, you know, you're dealing with a phenomena that is real, but what that yeah. what what is what is uh, uh, what makes it up is is an unknown. And it is a very real mystery. Uh, here's something I would love to ask you about. There's an interesting uh, video clip, uh, and, and whether you've seen it or not, I, I don't think it matters because I think you can you can sense what it would be like, where Bud and John Mack uh, sit on a stage together mm. and, and talk about uh, their research, uh, the things they have in common, and also the things that diverge in their research. Um, you know, John Mack came to conclusions that Bud wasn't comfortable with, and and um, you know they were gentlemanly enough to to uh, debate the the, the uh, their issues and their conclusions uh, in a way that I thought was uh, completely admirable. Um, that said, you know that that there are researchers out there who are doing what I consider very real work, and they are coming um, up with what would be uh, alternate conclusions now are are here's my question are the people who go to let's say someone like john mack or someone like leo sprinkle are they somehow pre-selecting knowing uh even just intuitively that uh, leo may have a more spiritual bend to what bud may have ha- may you know the the avenues that bud would go down as far as uh his research um uh is that what's happening? Why are why are there divergent conclusions? Um, and and once again, I will also say that you know this is this goes back to the to the blind men touching the elephant. You know, I, I, I feel confident that Leo is describing something. He's describing a very real part of the elephant. You know, I don't know whether it's a big picture or a tiny tiny little uh, hyper focused thing. And um, and I know that Bud and Leo diverged on their conclusions and methods. Yeah, but that's a great question, Mike, and a very important one. Um, and I can't give you a definitive answer. I can give you my best opinion on it. Um, I met Leo early on and just thought he, and still do, um, that he's one of the nicest people I've ever met and truly courageous pioneer. He is a psychologist and I'm sure risk losing his license by getting into this in the 1970s. Um, yes, and, and I'll just interrupt here real quickly. He, yeah. uh, it's, you know, he uh, is not shy about saying that he received a ton of grief as his role as a professor at the University of Wyoming um, after he started to look into this stuff. So, yeah. and a and, ton of grief may be an understatement. So, well, yeah. I mean, again, you're a mental health professional, but now you've just identified yourself as, what's the phrase I'm looking for? A nut. You know, 
a psychologist that believes that we're being visited by beings from other planets and high-tech machines give me a break and yank this guy's license. Um, John Mack, um, who I not only knew but counted as a dear friend and like Bud, who I loved and disagreed with on quite a number of things over the years and openly and in good faith and with goodwill, John brought me to Cambridge um, and had me speak um, at the Cambridge Hospital uh, in Boston, um, well, at the hospital for the staff of the psychiatric wing on the reality of UFOs, on the Rendlesham Forest incident, and on managing my own and others, or assisting and helping others to manage their own stress around the subject. Um, I can say, knowing John to some degree, that John entered this field with a predisposition, understandably on a certain level, that the Western model had really failed us and that we should be looking more toward the East and transcendence and the positive where possible. Um, this was already his worldview when he first met Bud, I think in 92 or so um, when he first came to the studio and as he uh, was fond of saying to me you know I'm paraphrasing here but to meet this painter who thought that aliens were visiting and was probably crazy but you know all the more curious about him um, and that over the years that followed and we lost John to a, a terrible drunken driving accident um, in England uh, I was actually very close at the time um, that John was most interested in finding transcendence and positive um, experiences among people and um, that the, uh, the force responsible for these incidents was also a positive thing and that, and, and it may well be, I just, you know, and it's not my primary view, but um, they were they were good friends and good colleagues who agreed to disagree on the most basic aspects of the phenomena and at the same time um, had tremendous affection for each other and great respect for each other. It's, it's a very, you know, it's like life. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's complex at the same time. Um, John and I talked this out on a number of occasions um, in Boston and um, in the States here. And Bud, from the initial beginnings of his investigative work into the abduction phenomenon in the 1970s, the results that he was getting, not results he was soliciting or looking for, were that people were having a rough time with this. Now, one can postulate or deduce, if you think that's accurate, that as their reputations developed and as their views became better known, uh, John's, of course, uh, years after Bud's, that if I had an experience and it was a really traumatic one, I think I'm going to seek out that Hopkins guy because he seems to already know what it's about. Or, you know, for me, it was amazing. I was, you know, I felt just, I mean, life changed in a positive way and I was not frightened or I learned to overcome my fear and think of them as, you know, assets or friends or here to help us in humanity. I'm going to seek out Dr. Mack. Um, one can argue in both directions, or one can even postulate that there are different, you know, abduction 
scenarios that are orchestrated by different intelligences or different aspects of the same intelligence or that it really all lies in the human mind um, and its ability to process and reason and um, deal with this phenomena as well as you can. So I, I could not wrong one of them on this. I, I think another example that needs to be mentioned here is Dr. David Jacobs, uh, uh, Bud's closest colleague and a, a dear friend of many years, who had actually written his Ph.D. thesis on the impact of the UFO phenomena, you know, sociologically and otherwise in the 20th century, and wrote a wonderful book that's been out of print for years called The UFO Controversy in America. And anybody that can pick up a used copy of that, it's an important book to add to your library. But when um, Jacobs, whose interest in the field predated Bud's by many years, heard about this painter in New York who thought that aliens were abducting people, um, he also was very clear um, in his reaction that this guy's got to be loopy and met Bud with that idea to be reinforced and came away pretty amazed that he felt just the opposite about it after actually seeing the case studies that Bud had put together meeting a lot of these individuals and then went off without an agenda and if anything has come to a darker conclusion about the phenomena. Um, again, one can argue that, well, they had a secret agenda and you can't know that they didn't. I, you know, I, I can't get into that kind of stuff. I do know that they found different conclusions for the same phenomena, which maybe is more a mark of the divergent ways that we human beings are about, you know, information and reality than about the other intelligences that are perpetrating these events on us or some kind of mix of both. Um, I miss John very much as well. He uh, was a wonderful presence. He is a great intellect. I knew about John and it was already um, uh, very respectful of his work in a completely unrelated area because when I did crisis intervention, we had a small library of books in our center there on subjects you might imagine we would have, everything from alcoholism to drug abuse to teenage suicide, etc., and Dr. Mack had written a wonderful, well, wonderful, he had written a very important book on adolescent uh, suicide. And um, when I realized it was that Dr. Mack who had come to see Bud and who I met shortly after, I was already somebody who respected his work and came to see him as a great intellect and one of the kindest and nicest people I've ever met. And um, uh, so that's the long answer to a, a very important question and one that, you know, can be debated endlessly, of course. Um, I do think also that after a certain amount of time, um, maybe it's in, it bleeds over into every, every kind of area of natural investigation. You know, you're some kind of research biologist dealing with, uh, you know, um, mammalian um, species of a certain type, and all of your initial graduate work and uh, your Ph.D. study have led you to a certain conclusion about the intelligences, about the, uh, the, the beings that you're dealing with, these creatures. And um, you then have that informing your views from that point on in your life. And no matter how good you are, perhaps you are influenced by your own point of view in a way that may skew your data to some 
infinitesimal or major degree. I have no idea. Um, and I'm talking out of my own realm here. My degree is in painting and film history, and it's a BFA. I, I don't have any advanced degrees. I, I think that, you know, in an ironic way, these prepared me. Um, and my, my general life experiences for doing this work fairly well and with respect for the unknown. But um, can one argue that both of these guys, you know, were um, to a certain degree entrenched in their view so much that they were less than fully open to um, the other point of view? I don't know. Um, you know, we had people occasionally in our groups or who saw Bud who reported positive experiences, but overwhelmingly, they were not having a positive experience. And um, that's what the data that I'm most familiar with um, in a very firsthand visceral way. And the data and, and the people that approach me overwhelmingly with some noteworthy exceptions are people who are not having a good time with this, who have been traumatized by it, who live it at the core of their secret life, and who share it with very few people. Uh, statistically, of course, as I've come to know, uh, well, not of course, and, and as you may be aware, this is probably more common than most folks without a background in this work who may be listening to this broadcast would even want to entertain. Um, I'm convinced that pretty much everybody with some kind of circle of friends and acquaintances probably knows somebody who has been through this. And the last thing they're going to do is confide to you about it. Uh, if anything, they may exercise a certain amount of excessive skepticism if the subject were ever to come up to protect, you know, their own feeling of vulnerability around it or not wanting to identify themselves as somebody that actually has had such an experience. Yeah, yeah. Hey, here's the, just uh, Leo Sprinkle, hmm. who I consider, you know, uh, someone who's... You know, looked into the abduction phenomena very deeply. Big time. As well as Raymond Fowler. Mm. They have something in common. Both of them claim to be abductees themselves and claim not to have known about it until they had immersed themselves into the, the, the subject for some number of years. Yes. yes. I, I find that fascinating. I, I do too. Um, and I, I'm not sure what to make of it, except that I think once again... This may have something to do with um, a very human um, aspect of our nature, a deep resistance to something that has happened to us. Um, I think if we look in a more conventional, although certainly traumatic area of psychology, people who have, um, you know, as children were subjected to sexual abuse, um, who have, in order to survive, you know, people like this that do things like this, that perpetrate these things on children for me, are, and I just can't say enough about how much contempt and disgust I have for them. And yes, maybe they are the victims and often are, but, you know, it is, anyway, I'm off on a tangent here, but um, there are so many documented cases, and this is a, a, a real phenomena, quote-unquote, uh, not a controversial one per se, um, who years into adulthood, the memory reemerges like a tidal wave of the reality. And, you know, maybe they entered therapy at some point for some free-floating anxiety or some feeling that X had happened when it was really Y. And a sensitive and skilled therapist can help them uncover that. 
uh, address it, um, help them cathart, and ideally help them move on with their life. Um, but yeah, um, that's the way um, it seems to have been, certainly for um, uh, for you know Leo and for Ray. And who am I or any of us to say, aha? Well, that's indicative of X, Y, or Z. It's just the way it was for them. Yeah, and and the assumption is, and I'll actually even put you into this category in a way because mm. you had your own direct experience. I mean, just being, mm. I don't know how to say it, you know, zapped with the UFO ray that uh, allowed you to fall in slow motion onto your to your front lawn there. Yeah. Um, uh, something about this interaction, you know, you told the story of the uh, fellow who was in the truck and watched um, Travis Walton. Yes, uh, yes, Mike Rogers. Yes, so he, he watches Travis Walton. He's not abducted. He's not taken aboard right. a craft. Um, but somehow or another, it unleashes this this uh, artistic ability. So so here, let me just get back to, so both Leo and Ray, or Ray Fowler, um, have... Uh, go down this avenue of very strange research looking into the abduction phenomena and they later find out that they themselves may have had the direct abduction experience themselves now the the thought is that a seed was planted by uh you know this is just pure speculation on my part mm. that a seed was planted somehow in these two individuals within their psyches that they would then go down uh the the path of life in some point they would pursue this avenue of research um, as, as for reasons I can't even begin to guess, as a benefit to, like as part of a plan, as part of a program to these intelligences that, 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 that may or may not have uh, abducted them in the first place. And then we can also even speculate that, um, you know, like, uh, you know, the the fellow in the car, the truck with the Travis Walton event, um, he did not uh, get abducted, but he uh, he did have a profound life change. And then we can even, you know, put Bud into that category. He saw a daylight sighting of a disc. Um, it uh, A seed was planted. Perhaps, you know, he was zapped by the some sort of uh, special ray that, that did nothing more than planted a seed that somewhere down the road he was going to do something for uh, a purpose within their plan. I mean, this is all purely speculation, but it... it, uh, it, uh, it... I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Mike, and for me, um, what I'm thinking in response is the speculation and perhaps are the operative phrases here. Um, let me offer an alternative postulate, which is um, Kurt Vonnegut, the great novelist, was a prisoner of war in Dresden in, during the firebombing of Dresden in World War II. And years later, as a novelist, he applied those memories to helping flesh out and create a remarkable aspect of his main character in the book. In the case of um, uh, Leo or... Um, Ray, that, yeah, they had this experience. It was so traumatic that they didn't want to deal with it and submerged it into their self-consciousness and went self-conscious and went on with their lives, but were compelled by, um, you know, a gnawing intellectual curiosity to pursue this work the way, you know, somebody could say, ah, here's Peter. He's definitely an abductee, and it's just not sort of broken through yet. Well, I've been waiting 35 years, and I've had um, exposed myself almost on a daily basis 
to data and information individuals who have been through this and nothing has triggered it yet. It's like, you know, accusing a marijuana smoker of, you know, it's a gateway drug. And, you know, you're just, the next day, you're, you know, you're going to wake up and you're going to shoot up heroin. Um, I smoked marijuana for the first time in the 1960s and um, occasionally um, have partaken as an adult. And oh, it's about 40 years now, and um, I'm waiting to go through that gateway and start shooting heroin. I mean, we can presuppose whatever we want, and again, I think a lot of these mechanisms may be particularly human um, and not having to do with a, you know, a, a transmission of, you know, like a Manchurian candidate, sort of extraterrestrial, interdimensional planting of a thought that will make you do this with your life. Um, following our intellectual curiosity is a natural human component. When I was 24, I spent a year on my own and made my way from um, New Haven, Connecticut, where I had a, um, a job on a Norwegian freighter, and seven months later ended up a few miles from the Tibetan border, having made that whole trip overland. I was on my own for a year, and every day was a new adventure and a new way to have to see survival. I roamed around Afghanistan and Iran and Pakistan and India and Nepal, um, the Soviet Union, and returned home, you know, myself, but changed forever. And it's informed every single day of my life. I, I spoke at a conference in August in Greece, and I hadn't been in Greece in 40 years. And it was a wonderful conference, and, you know, the time all too short. And... Um, I got to kind of retrace certain steps uh, up the Acropolis, which was terribly moving. And, you know, right now with the financial crisis in Europe revolving around the way that um, the Greek government may deal with it, um, makes me more interested than maybe the next American over in what's going on in Athens right now. Uh, and there's nothing mystical or transcendent about it. I see myself as a citizen of the world. and. This is something that is sparked by very real events in my life and has um, given me a wide range of very real interests and passions in life. And, you know, if I walked away from ufology, I'd certainly have plenty to keep me busy for the rest of my days, no question. And I'm not saying your, um, your hypothesis here is wrong. Uh, in fact, who the heck knows is, you know, really the operative phrase here. Uh, it can be anything from the most extraordinary to the most regular everyday thing that sets certain uh, aspects of our behavior in motion. Now, um, one of the reasons I asked that is because um, as I started looking into this, uh, my own set of experiences, it, it came hand in hand with this documentary where the documentary makers uh, were were fascinated by the concept that, that that I was a blank slate. I had not looked into my own experiences, <laughs> and yeah, and then I could walk into someone like Bud Hopkins's office without you know having you know made any sort of investigation into yeah. my own set of experiences. So, um, you know, in in fair enough, that is a that that was a I was all you know uh, initially I was I thought it was ridiculous and I didn't want any part of it, but somehow I recognized that it had the potential to be good. Uh, potentially a good story. Um, now, what happened in the spring of 2009 was that I felt compelled 
and to start writing about my own experiences um, on an online blog format. Um, I was immediately, within a week, you know, sort of slammed with what I amount... Uh, here, I'll edit this out. I was immediately slammed with what were profound synchronicities. And, and, I, and I used the word compelled just a second ago, and I don't use that word lightly. I felt like I was compelled by an outside force. And I'm going to say I felt. I don't know. Um, it could have been just my own obsessive, confused uh, sense of, of, of uh, you know, my own identity being all, all rattled by looking into this thing. But I, I did uh, start uh, writing about this. I did, uh, shortly thereafter, I did start doing these audio interviews. Um, and uh, I have talked to other people, people with first-hand experiences, um, a few of them who even started their blog on the very same day as mine, which is a, which is an odd thing to <laughs> contemplate. Um, mm-hmm. And they also say that they felt um, somehow compelled to start mm-hmm. sharing their own stories. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there was no such thing as the Internet. Uh, you know, just uh, if you go back 10 years ago and the ease of using an online forum like this is something that is that can, you know, is aligned pretty closely with 2009. So, you know, that would be when one would start anyway. But uh, I, uh, you know, like I, this is more like a, a, a question that, that I don't have an answer to, and I just want to get your take on it. You know, like I don't have an answer. And on mm-hmm. one sense, I do feel like I was uh, compelled by perhaps an outside force to mm-hmm. start sharing my story. You know, Mike, the question you ask is, is, is so important and I don't know the answer to it, but I am absolutely um, open to the possibility that, yes, you and others may well have been compelled to come forward at a certain point and be public about your experiences, even to the point of, you know, working on a project, a a blog or a documentary, or um, getting involved in the research and investigation field or, you know, um, however, based on just that. Um, I, I think so much in life, like even regular normal life, is mysterious, and we never actually know um, w- some of the whys and hows of, you know, the questions that we ask. Uh, life is filled with mysteries, and, you know, some people are very anxious about them, perplexed, concerned, um, obsessed with them, for me, they're a gentle tap on the shoulder to remind us that a lot of life is just that. We will not get the answers in hard, cold terms that we may so long for. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, there you are. And to remember that life is an adventure and a mystery and something uh, to be embraced full on um, and to live as fully as you can, um, and uh, to take those risks, uh, and a risk it is on a certain level. Um, fear of ridicule comes to mind as uh, preeminent for anybody that gets involved in this in a meaningful way. Um, but there you have it. Um, I more than that's about the best answer I can give. Sure. Yeah. You know the way I think about it in a way um, almost is that if this were a fiction. And I was a scriptwriter. Um, you know, this that would be a that would be an interesting little way to to address the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, that, that, that feeling of compulsion. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I can't go much beyond that, you know, like that, yeah. I, I recognize the, the, the inherent drama that I've laden that, 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 that experience with. Um, and, and, uh, so I don't have a good answer, but it is funny cause I have, <laughs> I, other people have shared almost the same thing with me where mm. I, I was actually on the phone with one woman who started her blog, uh, within weeks of mine. Um, mm. And it might have been within months. I'm going to be careful of that. So, um, and we um, actually got out the thesaurus and looked up uh, "impelled" and "compelled" and tried to figure out which was the better vocabulary word. Uh-huh. So, very good. Um, very good. Hey, I underwent a hypnosis session with Bud in 2007, mm-hmm. and in that session, um, I was being videotaped. I was very nervous to go under, and partially the reason I was nervous is because I had read a bunch of books. Um, by you know you know Bud and a lot of other authors, I got very compe- or I got very obsessed with the subject, and and uh, so I knew that there was the potential maybe for th- something very scary to be unlocked, and and I was frightened uh, by the mm. act of going under. So um, I don't feel that I went under very well. Uh, mm-hmm. Or at all, you know, this is, gets very murky. And you know, like I, I, people who talk about hypnosis say that sometimes it doesn't feel like anything. But uh, um, so there's a videotape of me for a while being uh, hypnotized by Bud. And, you know, I don't think I came up with any answers any different than I would have come up with if I was asked the same set of questions in a fully, uh, you know, awake state. Uh, the one thing that did happen, which I, this is what I want to ask you about, um, is uh, there was an event that took place in 1974. I've spoken about it at length on this uh, blog as well as on these podcasts uh, where I had a missing time event uh, while walking home from a high school football game. Uh, mm-hmm. What happened in the... Uh, event was, you know, I got to a certain point, a corner on a street in front of a, a house, you know, I could put a, I could put a chalk X on the sidewalk to the inch where I was standing where it happened, and this happened in, uh, you know, getting close to 35 years ago now. Um, and uh, after, you know, what I experienced was to see an orange flash in the sky. And that is my waking experience. That is something I can I, I remember pretty darn clearly all these years yeah. later. And then when it, we both, me and my friend, thought it was very jarring. It was silent. It was just, it felt like God flipped the light switch, turned the sky orange and shut it off. Um, and then when I arrived home, I was approximately an hour and a half to two hours late. And my parents oh, were boy. angry at me. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you've heard similar stories to this. Yeah. So, and um, 90 minutes is the number that is so often associated with this time. Yeah, I uh, don't have a good number experience. exactly how long it was. Yeah. Now, okay. uh, so here, I'll just share a little bit more about this. Cause, uh, so I, I talked to Bud ahead of time, and I drew a little penciled you know, illustration. I said, here's the school, and here's the way I walked home, and I crossed this two-lane road, which is the main highway you know, near my house or the main street, mm-hmm. and then I got to the spot, and it was right here, right where the X is, right on the map, and then to get home, I would have had to walk another block. And um, uh, once under, he started talking about it. I had a so this would have been at the high school football game i would have been in junior high so i wasn't in high school yet but that was something that the kids in the neighborhood did is we would go to the friday night football game um i when bud put me under he said uh you know like okay picture yourself at the football game and i kind of could and he said okay picture yourself walking home and i pictured this gate and it was a very defined gate it was at a certain corner of the uh 
of the high school and I and I pictured it so clearly and I tell you I have like there was no reason at all for me to ever think about this gate in all these years but there it was absolutely vivid and clear in my memory um, he said picture your friend's face and I pictured him as a 12 year old boy you know he had red hair and freckles and I pictured him absolutely clearly uh, uh, so these were, this was kind of, I was impressed. I got to the road that I was crossing, the, the, the illustration that I had drawn on the map. It was the main street there. And um, it wasn't a two-lane road. It was a four-lane road. And you could hear me say that in the, in the videotape. It's like, it's a four-lane road. Um, like I, like I, I recognized that I had told Bud you know, something inaccurate. You know, and there I saw it in, in my mind's eye, as clear as clear can be, as a four-lane road, which it actually is. I've gone back and rechecked it on, on Google Earth. Um, now, I get to the spot on the sidewalk where the event took place, and I have no other way to describe this, but it felt like God pushed the pause button on the VCR. There we were, two frozen images, just standing there, me and my friend. And then Bud went through a bunch of uh, little things. He said, okay, pretend it's a movie, you know, and you're, you know, you're just going to watch the movie. And he said, okay, then pretend like you're watching it from above, you know, and he, mm -hmm. he went through all these things. Nothing was going to get me past that thing. It felt, and I was just like, you can hear me there kind of shrugging my shoulders like, well, it's, uh, it's, there we are, we're frozen. And then, uh, you know, he went on and on and on. And um, uh, later he had, he said, okay, let's just skip past this and let's go home. And uh, I also had the experience of looking at a clock in my, in my home. Uh, he said, okay, what time is it when you arrived home? And I, and I said, you know, it was about 1130. The, the 11 o'clock news was ending. And I knew that going in, so I had that conscious memory. But mm -hmm. when I looked at the clock, I had the most vivid, clear uh, uh, sighting of the clock in my kitchen um, you know, it was lit exactly the way my parents would have like left the lights on in the house at that time of night, and it and the clock said um, eleven twenty. Now that doesn't like I don't trust that in the sense that like I cannot say empirically that like it was exactly eleven twenty when I arrived home. Um, what I can say is that it you know it kind of matched my waking memory. But um, here's what I want to say. So when I left uh, Bud's house that afternoon. Um, he gave me a big hug. He slapped me on the back, and he and he kind of said, "You know, just you know, I've been doing this for a while, and I, uh, you know, I've hypnotized a lot of people, and and I've seen some people that were blocked, but you are blocked, or you know, or, let me say, say that again, but you yeah. were blocked, and uh, and that could be construed as a leading thing where he was in essence, uh, you know, yeah. leading me along, but it it felt much more like um." you know, someone who was genuinely recognized that I was curious about the entirety of the phenomena. And, yeah. and he was sharing something that, that, that he, you know, that he was saying, you know, as a truism from his, his research. I think that's, that's a great observation. Um, I, I can easily see Bud making that remark from the heart and off the cuff or as a calculated um, maneuver to produce a result. Um, and that is a standard technique that many therapists um, would use. Uh, and again, let's take this into a conventional realm of dealing with a, an earthbound trauma. Um, a similar technique might be used by a psychotherapist, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist in working with a patient who was, you know, really stymied in um, uncovering and addressing. Uh, a life-changing traumatic event in their life. Um, 
I'll take it a step further. Um, last December, on December 28th, there was a conference held in Suffolk, England, um, marking the 30th anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Um, I spoke, as did Linda Howe, and two of the witnesses, uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. My co-author and dear friend Larry Warren was there and took a few minutes with the audience, but he wasn't there to speak. And the most poignant and um, deeply troubling um, uh, aspects and fascinating as well, parts of the, uh, the program for me were hearing Jim and John talk about their experiences and memories. And this was the most with it um, informed audience I think I've ever spoken before because they grew up with this story as the story informing in many cases their entire lives childhoods there were civilian witnesses there there were retired military people there and they were angry about um, not getting some of the answers that they were looking for and still pissed off at the way that the American Air Force and the Ministry of Defense had dealt with this uh, event that so informed their lives and uh, John Burroughs, um, who is like Larry and like Jim and so many other first-hand witnesses, still deeply uh, well, post-traumatic stressed out to a degree by this. Um, I, I'm kept paraphrasing here, but a question from the audience might have been, John, is it true, as I've heard, that when you came upon the machine in the woods with Jim, you pulled your sidearm on it and went into a two-handed stance? John's response, I may have, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a real memory. John, is it true that you jumped on the thing and it went like 30 feet with you before you let go? I'm not sure. It, it may have happened. I just don't know whether it's a real memory or an implanted memory. John, were you abducted? I don't know. I don't know if it really happened or it didn't. Um, and John has been working on this. Uh, both men have seen therapists or seeing them. And uh, in working with Linda Howe over the years and on their own, they've both, I think, been very courageous in showing clips of their regressive hypnosis with their therapists. And boy, um, John is just terrified of what's on the other side of that door, allegorically speaking, of what actually happened and has still not faced it even 30 years later. Um, and it's not a reflection on the man or the, his character or anything except that the resistance is very righteous and for reasons that I, I think any of us can respect and understand as well as we can. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let me let me um, sum up my set of questions and I'll just, I'll just uh, share, uh, this is less a question, I'm just going to share my final uh, time with Bud, which would have been in October of 2008. Mm. And um, I was supposed to get a... Uh, hypnotic regression that afternoon i can't remember what time it was i'll just say three o'clock and um so i was staying at a friend's house in brooklyn i took the train over to manhattan and uh, i was a little bit early so i kind of walked around the block and then i was still a little bit early so i walked around the block again and uh and it was at, at one point i actually um there was a woman, I can't remember what she was doing, you know, sort of like trying to get signatures for Earth First or something like that. And uh, and she actually made a joke. She was kind of said, like, this is the third time you passed as I walked around the block. And she, I think she was on, uh, would, would have been 8th Avenue there. Um, so uh, very nervous. I show up uh, to see Bud at, I, you know, ring the buzzer at, at 3. And I walk up to his 
his uh, his residence there, and um, and this is a time that I saw Bud, and he did not look well. His health, it was obvious, his he was in poor health. Yeah. And and uh, he basically said, "Listen, you know, I know we said you wanted to do a, um, a hypnotic regression, but I'm not up for it. Uh, yeah. Let's just sit and talk." And I was like, Whew. "Okay, thank God," because I was so nervous immediately, like yeah. a, a big weight had been lifted off me. So yeah. we sat and talked, and it was probably. Over two hours, we just sat there on yeah. his couch in the living room and talked, and I wish I had recorded it. Um, he was speaking off the cuff. He told a lot of stories that, um, you know, paralleled some of my experiences, and then I asked questions, and he, you know, we it was good. It was very good. He was, you know, he didn't shy away from, from sort of uh, saying, like, oh, that's not what he has seen in his research. Um, so he wasn't uh, coddling me, let me put it that way. He was treating me you know, he was being very straight up, you know, while he was speaking from his, his set of experiences. Uh, one of the things I did talk about during that, that was, uh, I had been, you know, I'd, I'd met with Leo Sprinkle. I'd talked with Leo Sprinkle and then, uh, you know, he was pretty straight up that he did not agree with some of Leo's, uh, techniques. Oh yes. And, um, and, you know, fair enough. And, and, and on a, on a funny way, um, you know, I feel like I am one of those people who, uh, on one level wants to go down the spiritual path with, with trying to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, I found a great deal of, uh, solace and it was very beneficial for me to, to go to Leo and have him, uh, you know, look at the phenomena as a, you know, as a grand metaphor or as a, uh, um, you know, as a teaching tool or something like that. You know, I, I, you know, I could wrap my mind around that and I, and I, I found it very helpful to spend that time with Leo. And, uh, so the conversation went on and on. And then at a point, you know, uh, Bud seemed weak and I realized it was time to go. So I said goodbye and gave him a big hug at the door. And then he looked at me and he said, um, you, uh, you live, you live pretty close to Leo, don't you? And I said, yeah, by Western standards, you know, it's, a, you know, it's I live pretty close to Leo. And he said, yeah, you should, um, you should work with Leo. I think you'd be a good fit. Hmm. And I thought that was really sort of uh, respectful of me in a way. Wow. Uh, because um, I, I think he just knew that I was, uh, uh, you know, not naive enough to just uh, take anything that Leo said at face value, you know, that I would weigh it and, 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 uh, glean whatever, whatever wasn't, uh, vital to my own path here. So that really struck me as, as, you know, just kind and, and, uh, you know, there was nothing, you know, when he spoke about Leo, he didn't speak about it in a bitter way. He just said, you know, like, Oh, I don't see eye to eye with his techniques and here's these reasons why. Um, and then at the end, just to say like, Oh, you would be a good fit for Leo. I thought that I was, it was, it was uh, quite touching. And, um, yes, and I, uh, you know, and I gained all the more respect for him because of that. Yes, good for him, and good for you. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I like that. I like that. Um, I think also it makes sense to. There are so few people that I would recommend worldwide to anybody to look into these events with. It's a really small cadre of people that I've really learned to trust and admire, and quite a number of the names are not names that would mean anything in, you know, major ufological circles. They're people that have had experiences that have become quite knowledgeable on them that share that gift of humanity and patience and um, respect for what they don't understand and who, by simply being a good listener, even if they're not a mental health professional or 
a famous, you know, abduction or UFO-related researcher, um, I would still refer people to, um, rather than, uh, you know, handle it myself, or part of it is intuition, I think, and it is it is an inexact and new science, to put it mildly. So these are, you know, part of the things that we're dealing with here. Yes, I mean, we are treading, we collectively, you know, <laughs> uh, you and I who have both had, uh, you know, experiences, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, you and I who are both playing the role of researcher, you know. No, yes, I feel like right. I am playing the role of researcher in this, um, not aggressively, and it mostly just to make sense of my own set of experiences but um you know this yeah. is a this is a path that uh, that goes right into the darkest part of the woods and uh, uh and there is no uh guidebook there's no rule book that that uh, you know you can uh, you can look at to give you an idea of how to proceed forward um, yeah there are um again some guideposts so to say uh like the collected work of somebody named Bud Hopkins um, and other researchers, um, but I think mostly relying on one's common sense uh, and an openness to the fact that everything that happens to us in life cannot be logically or scientifically or analytically accounted for. And, um, you know, you can rage at the universe if you want or live in fear or... Uh, get militant about it or follow a set belief and become a spokesperson for your belief, Um, you know, what your own free will dictates. Um, Some of these things um, I would disagree with in terms of the point of view being put out, but who are any of us to tell another one of us that we're wrong, Based on what? Um, I remember something Bud once said again, referring to hardcore debunkers as opposed to people like I like to think that we are, which is that for them, it's all fact and no miracles. Um, And the fact, of course, is that we're wrong and that you know, the the real question is where our delusion springs from. Um, and miracle is a word Bud rarely used, um, where for us it's all miracles and, you know, no information to back it up. We are looking into the unknown in capital wiggly letters. Uh, thank goodness we have somebody like Bud to look to on a certain level now in terms of his published work, and he's a very prolific writer. Uh, He wrote four books and co-wrote a fifth book, uh, all worth reading. And at the same time, he probably wrote hundreds of articles, editorials, critiques, monographs, um, more and more of which I hope um, we at the Intruders Foundation, as we reorganize and decide where we go from here uh, and in fact, the first meeting of the um, uh, board of advisors of the nonprofit that Bud founded in um, 1989 met the day after the memorial for Bud on um, October 11th. Uh, but one of the intentions um, that I think we all agreed on is, as our webmaster is able, 
to post more and more of these pieces, some which may actually have to be retyped from typed papers because he was writing this stuff before, you know, digital uh, storage went. But a lot of them, you know, we can just transpose onto the website. Um, that there is now with Hopkins, with Mac, with Jacobs, with a handful of others, an emerging body of work as scholarly, as rigorous as it can be uh, about this phenomena, which I hope will serve as a guide. Um, you know, certainly it's uh, controversial, but that there is now, there are now databases to go to and ever so many, um, you know, information offerings online. Uh, and one has to be particularly careful in vetting your sources and your information. The Internet is um, a decidedly double-edged sword. It's miraculous. It's one step away from magic on a certain level. You've got, you know, a billion facts and alleged facts out there. Uh, but for me, building a good actual real-world, three-dimensional library of books on the subject is um, a very important way to proceed as well, to have the in-print information and include books that, you know, one would disagree with because one should know those points of view. Um, we human beings, and I think Americans to a degree in particular, are um, very outspoken about our um, right to have opinions to any damn thing in the world that we want and the fact that we are not informed about what we're having an opinion on or well-informed, be damned. You know, I'm going to have an opinion anyway. Um, and that leads to kind of a lower-level discourse, which we just see a lot of, um, you know, in, in modern communication. But, um, yeah, uh, there's a definition of a Zen beginner um, and it's essentially knowing that you know nothing and having it be all right. And 35 years into my study of this phenomena, I still find myself several times a year, literally, and I don't mean it as an intellectual thing, I mean it feeling it in my very core of, of, of saying, my God, this is really happening. This is an actual, real phenomena. It's true. People are taken by other intelligences, subjected to X, Y, and Z, and returned. And yet the world continues to go on in its very crazy way, crazier all the time right now. Um, but there is real information, and uh, one should ed educate themselves to it, or at least make an attempt to, and develop a point of view based on what has been studied and what has been written rather than just make a snap judgment based on your own belief system or level of anxiety uh, about something that you know nothing about. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, this has been delightful. Uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I feel like uh, the, any sort of tribute to Bud or any sort of uh, investigation or, or should be... I don't know, done at a very, very heartfelt level because the, the guy was, uh, from my direct experience, um, you know, he did a lot of his, his, his work and, uh, you know, as a, oh, as someone who, who was very, very concerned about the emotional well-being of the people who claim these experiences. And that meant a lot to me. You're right. And um, let's also remember 
aside from the established fact that Bud was the pioneer, more than anybody, investigator of this phenomena and has left a great legacy and uh, cut a path through the unknown that the rest of us uh, will continue to try to follow and expand on. But he was also a great guy, and I miss him terribly. He's also uh, a great intellect, had a great sense of humor, uh, a wonderful artist, and um, a good man. And there are ever so many tributes out there right now. Um, I received, as I irregularly do, a complimentary copy of the new UFO magazine today, and I noticed that um, uh, there's a nice tribute to him um, in there uh, in the issue that I received. I guess it's the current one uh, by Sean Castile. Uh, my friend and colleague um, Katrina Wilson has posted dozens of um, uh, really great acknowledgments of Bud and um, remembrances of him on her terrific website, thealienjigsaw.com. Uh, I have a, um, a remembrance of Bud coming out in the upcoming issue of Open Minds magazine and a separate one that will be published in the United Kingdom by uh, Phenomena magazine, a terrific online monthly that one can uh, subscribe to for free. And I know we'll be seeing more over the next years and decades. Um, he's a person for the ages, and he now belongs to history. And uh, people like you and I are we're fortunate to have known him. I, I like to think that I'm the better person for it. Yeah, I felt deeply honored to just to know that I spent some time in his presence and, and uh, that he was so attentive to, um, you know, the questions and concerns and very <laughs> real challenges I was struggling with at the time. Yeah. Amen hey, to that, brother. Hey, Peter, yes. thank you so much for uh, for the time. This has been just great. Well, I, I agree, and I'll look forward to our um, next get-together on the air. We have promised each other that we will do a, a, a lighter show on uh, this phenomenon and popular culture and film and other aspects of things that we're passionate about. And um, always a pleasure, my dear friend. I wish we lived closer, but um, times like this, it's great to catch up with you and share it with some of our friends uh, in the listening audience. Good. I hope I look forward to seeing you in February in uh, down yeah. at the conference in Arizona. Absolutely, yes. The International UFO Congress in February. Uh, we'll hope that uh, also some people that are uh, hearing us right now will be there as well. Great. Thank you so cool. much. You're welcome, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye okay, there were about a million questions I would have loved to have asked him. Uh, maybe someday we'll do a follow-up interview. Um, uh, but until that day, uh, there's a lot of great information in, in the conversation we had here. Uh, I would also like to say that his sister Helen, um, who has since died, was a, kind of a staple on the Lower East Side punk rock scene. And this would have been in the East Village in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, kind of a chapter of New York City that I had a part in. Um, I never saw her perform live. Uh, her stage name was Helen Wheels. And uh, to make things uh, even more funny, I guess, she, for a time, uh, was very close with none other than R. Crumb. And uh, I'll include a, a sketch that R. Crumb did of Helen. 
she was somewhat of a bodybuilder and uh, and took a great amount of pride uh, wearing how should I say this wearing very little on stage that uh, was a chapter of rock and roll we may never see again it was kind of nutty uh, uh, and and I speak uh, with some direct knowledge on that point and and just in just hearing from Peter it sounds like uh, his sister Helen and Bud were very close to uh, so um, some sad thoughts here to end this uh, I do know Bud talks a lot about the history of New York City that he was part of, and that would have been the New York of the 1950s and early 60s, kind of the classic jazz era. Something I do not have much knowledge of. I wasn't there, so my only knowledge is through records. If you've made it this far, thank you so much.
That was Chet Baker and his orchestra playing Autumn in New York. Chet Baker had a beautiful voice. Uh, you don't get to hear him sing here, but he does play a beautiful trumpet. Thank you so much. Bye now.